Our next session is chaired by Iona Heath, who has been a GP, President of the Royal College of General Practitioners, chaired their Ethics Committee as well as the BMJ Ethics Committee. Uh, has written for many years a very fiery column for the BMJ. She is radical, unabashed, insightful, and for me personally, a complete inspiration. Welcome to Iona Heath. Thank you, Sam, for that ridiculously generous um, introduction. I have with me three um, extraordinary people. I have on my immediate left, um, I have Charlotte Blees, um, who is a research... I've written it down here somewhere. A, 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 you are a, you're a research fellow? Research fellow in philosophy. At University College Dublin. Right. And she was a, new a BBC New Generation thinker of last, last year. I doubt if there are any more of those in the room. Um, then I have Deborah Bowman, who is a Professor of Medical Ethics at St George's Hospital and the editor of uh, the Journal of Medical Humanities. And then I have Julian Bugini, who is a... We, we couldn't decide whether he was a philosopher and a writer or whether he was a philosophical writer or <laughs> perhaps a writing philosopher, but maybe all three. Now... I think this session is a bit of a conundrum because here we are at Medicine Unboxed about voice. So presumably the whole thing is about the medical voice and yet we are supposed to be having a session on the medical voice. So it's kind of, I, I, I'd like to flatter ourselves that we are the core of this, um, but I suspect that is, um, you know, <laughs> inflating ourselves too much. But I, I think it's also absolutely fascinating that uh, Deborah was medically trained but never practised. So in a way, I'm the only one who has ever had the chance to have an authentic medical voice. So the question I want to ask, start by asking all three of you is whether philosophy, ethics and medical humanities are strands or components or integral to the medical voice or whether they just seek to commentate on the medical voice. Who wants? <laughs> <laughs> Two heads look my way. Um, okay, well, uh, that's a very good question because you said, are they? And there's a question of uh, two things. Are they or should they be? Mm -hmm. um, I think they should be altogether. I think there's a bit of a problem in, in the way that sometimes people think about, say, medical ethics as it's some kind of additional expertise which um, gets parachuted in to sort out the problems on the ground. Or it's something that is not needed at all because doctors know what they're doing and who are these people kind of meddling. And I think that's really problematic. And, and all we really sort of need is not more philosophers necessarily um, in medicine. I mean, that might be a bad thing. But it's that philosophical d dimension to the work needs to be there. So I kind of think if we think... Uh, who, for example, is the expert? You know, who's the expert when it comes to ethics? I think yeah, there isn't one. The expertise is collective, I think. You, you reach a form of... And a lot of, like, government commissions and reports into big issues of bioethics, I think, have borne this out. What they've done is they've brought together people with a range of expertise, including some philosophers, and together they've often come up with, I think, pretty good, sound conclusions. So I think it's a collaborative thing, uh, which... I don't think people outside the profession can do by themselves, but I think I'm not sure people entirely within the profession can do so either. I think I, I mean I think it's really interesting because I guess I would see what I do as um, helping people, maybe giving people the space 
in which to explore the ethical dimension of what they are already doing. So I'm not giving them something that uh, is remote and that is particular to me. It's already there. And, and by people, I don't just mean the doctors and the medical students. I actually mean patients and families and others as well. Um, because most ethical decisions are not made by ethicists. They're not even made by doctors. You know, the decision whether or not to go and see a doctor has a moral dimension to it. Um, the ways in which we conceptualize illness has a moral dimension to it. So I guess for me, it's about shining a light on that and exposing the multiplicity of voices within that, rather than coming along with another voice, another um, claim to expertise. You know, the curriculum's crowded in medicine. The last thing that's needed is, is another language and another way of looking at the world. But I do think you, you need a space where you can explore and recognize that it is a human discipline. It's molecules and meaning. It's not just the molecules. Um, I would add to that that I think that the, the medical humanities, I think, by the way, we have to differentiate between what we mean when we talk about the humanities on the one hand and then science on the other, or medicine maybe is uh, needing biomedical science on the other. Um, when we think about the humanities, we think about the creative arts. We may also include history and philosophy, which in some respects are evidence-based subjects. So they, they sit in the fringes of science, depending on your perspective on philosophy. My perspective is it sort of sits on the fringes of, of science. But um, it's a separate question then to ask, what does anything, I mean, do we want the medical humanities or the, med or the medical arts, I think? Uh, do we think that they play an instrumental role in improving uh, doctors? And I think that they're very often parachuted in, if you will, to help develop the soul of doctors. And that's where I take issue with it, because I think it's right on the one hand to diagnose, forgive the medical metaphor, but to diagnose a problem of medicine right now as um, a problem of a crisis of empathy. So students are educated in biomedical science. What can we do to uh, inculcate or to encourage or facilitate a kind of perspective taking? And so then the art says, well, we don't really like to be used as a means to an end, but we can help out here. And I think that the voice that we're not hearing enough of is the human sciences. And actually, uh, Ray Tallis uh, didn't mention this at all. He skipped from uh, talking about music to neuroscience. What about psychology? What about human? I, mean, I think in the, uh, the medical curriculum is already stuffed, but I think we're going to look back in, in this era and say, why did we miss out so much on the mind brain of the patient and the mind brain of the doctor sitting there? That just seems to me to get you know forgotten. I think there's incursions into seeing the importance of, of human psychology, but. Social psychology, cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, sociology, anthropology. Medical students are stuffed as it is. You know, like like uh, Danielle Offrey talks about sitting like geese, you know, in medical lectures, you know, being stuffed like, like foie gras, you know, with med biomedical facts. And it's great that we can indulge in a bit of the arts, or the arts may have a, a utility. But I think psychology is vastly important here, and we need to talk about it more. So I'd like to, to uh, stand up for the voice of psychology within medical education. 
Julian wants to say something. I hope yeah, he's going yeah. to say something. Well, it's very interesting to talk about those other subjects, sociology as well. I mean, this is, this is important. It's, I don't think it is fringe. Okay, it's a little anecdote. I was uh, abroad recently, and I got this... Uh, I was getting these really, really bad headaches, right? And it was a sinus thing. I thought it was like a head cold. It would pass, and it just wouldn't pass. It wouldn't pass. After a week... I was, in, I was in Berlin, and it turned out it's quite easy to see a doctor as a tourist in Germany. So if you ever have a, feel ill in Germany, it's really simple. And I went and saw someone, and they diagnosed it. They say it's not an infection or anything. So I was feeling even more sort of pathetic, because there I was feeling terrible. And it wasn't even, I didn't even have an infection, for goodness sake. It was just gunk. And I was said, take these. And they gave me this stuff to take. It will go away. Uh, I still had it when I came back, and I was seeing my doctor for something else, as it turns out. And I, I mentioned this to him, and I showed him the pills, and he goes, yeah, well, the thing is, see, in Germany, they, they like all this stuff. It's, it's herbal remedies, basically. And they dish it out, but he says, there's no evidence base for it. Um, you should take this instead, which is this nasal spray, which did work. Although, of course, I say it worked, but, of course, what you've got to remember is that just because you got better after taking something, it doesn't mean it was the medicine. But any, Anyway, but the point is, here's an amazing example. Germany and Britain, two Western developed countries. And people go to their medical school and they assume they're just getting medical training on the best evidence we have. But between those two countries, there's a huge difference in the culture, which means one doctor will give you a herbal pill and the other one will think it's complete nonsense. Now, this is a fact about the sociology. If you don't know anything about the sociology of medicine, you wouldn't know that was the case. Now, I, I can't think... That's surely not a bad thing that people should be aware of when they're thinking about how they should think about their own training and what it's told them. But I think, I mean, one of the things that I think is it almost doesn't matter what you call it, what discipline you, you um, screw your colours to in a way. What it's about is humility and the facility to be open. And it seems to me that a facility for understanding that the boundaries of your discipline or whatever it is you are most interested in is, is really just a tiny, tiny part of what it is to know, to be, to experience. And, and it seems to me that any curriculum that's necessarily dominated by one way of thinking, particularly in an area like medicine where it's about multiplicity, is always going to be flawed. It's always going to be partial. Yes. <laughs> I'll go now. No, yes. I, I, I find myself thinking about Bob and his in the dark and... Uh, we, we, you know, not trying to write the light, but about um, thinking about the dark. Um, and I think an awful lot of medicine is conducted in the dark. We, we, we've just heard that we don't have even absolutes in the understanding of medical science between two European countries, let alone across the world, even though it's a very big imperialist exercise exporting what we think is... Um, a sort of um, united Western medicine. Um, but if we, if we then link that back to morality, so the, is, is there absolute truth in medicine? Anybody who works in it long enough knows it, there isn't. What about absolute truth in absolute moral truth? Is everything, are, are, does the fact that everybody is so different mean that all moral truths are relative? Uh, I think we're getting into pretty heavy philosophical mm. discussion here that we, we can probably avoid, actually. I think it would... <laughs> 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 um, I mean, I think it's important that uh, certainly um, the work Derpa does is vitally important, and I think that um, psychology is important, let me say, even in terms of medical students not paying attention to uh, 
faculty members who don't have a medical background. I mean, that's interesting too, because we need to think there about, on a ped pedagogical level, about attention biases. And if you haven't been through, um, uh, if you haven't practiced as a doctor, what have you got to tell me? And I think that's a big problem for anybody who wants to teach medical students uh, anything that is outside the so-called, maybe the biomedical curriculum. And I think that this is the real challenge that uh, face, that I think the important challenge is in restoring, and as I say, providing more of this space to, uh, um, to create a kind of uh, case studies, if you will, but to, kind of, to create a kind of repertoire of situations in the student's mind, because most medical students are pretty middle class, lily white individuals. They haven't got much experience of life and perhaps not much imagination about um, <laughs> different, different, different situations that they face. The individual who, you know, the individual who's perhaps, take for example, sitting uh, on a council estate who, there's only, who can't get a job, whose only pleasure in life is, is smoking, and you know, the doctor is sitting there saying, do you, you, know, you need to give up the smoking? Well, actually, that individual's values are calibrated according to their social environment. They're partially calibrated. Hold, hold, so, um, hold on a sec. Because med, the, the pursuit of medicine is a, is, is a minefield. Anybody who's tried to do it knows that it is incredibly difficult and you, you and, and you know I once convinced myself I was quite a good doctor for 48 hours uh, <laughs> and then something goes wrong and, and and it's incredibly difficult and you're telling me as a philosopher that there, there are no there's no moral solid ground either um, and, and, and I, I I don't I, think as a, as a doctor uh, we need you need to be concerned about talking about moral ground in that sense I think what you need to be concerned about is some understanding of an individual, it's, medicine's a probabilistic science to some extent. We can talk about whether uh, medicine is an art as well. I think that's a, that's a whole different story, but I think that the slogan is medicine and art is a very dangerous slogan. I think we need to, to lose that. Um, but I think that the, what concerns the doctor with the patient sitting in front of them is what is this individual's values, perhaps their religious values, cultural values that may, uh, impress on how they're going to pursue treatment, what treatments they're going to regard as valuable to them or not available to them. And I think, in a sense, the doctors need only be concerned with, to some extent, Deborah will probably pick up on this, um, um, what is the fact of the matter about this patient and what they think about treatment and so on. You, you might want to say some more here. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess I see it differently. Um, I, I would say that the ground, the moral ground isn't firm and static, but it's certainly there. And what you need, what you need to do, what you want to help people to do is to explore it and actually to take. So for, for most students and for most doctors, the GMC is a terrible thing. It's a very frightening thing. It's out there. It sets out standards um, by which you are judged and you feel you fall short. Now, there's a huge gap between tomorrow's doctors or duties of a doctor and the day-to-day -day lived experience. And for me, ethics is about that day-to-day -day lived experience and thinking, what is this ground on which we are standing? What is it I'm bringing to it? And actually, um, not just because there are some of my students here, I would say I am stunned by the imagination and creativity and empathy and compassion of the students who come into medicine, actually. I'm absolutely stunned by them, and they are a joy. Um, but what I would also say is it's my role is to help them to 
work with the ground that they have chosen and that has chosen them, and in a career that's going to be lifelong, that's going to be rife with failure, with disappointment, with feeling inadequate, actually, if ethics doesn't improve not just practice, but almost resilience, emotional resilience, it seems to me it is missing the point. Um, and I feel that very strongly, as you may tell. Yes. Julian. Well, I kind, of, I kind of agreed with Charlotte's broad initial statement that, in a sense, we don't, doctors don't have to worry about the exact question you put. The reason is this, for me, might be a different reason, is that the question is, you know, is there this objective morality or is it all just relative? Well, actually, they're two extremes on a, on a spectrum, right? And well, I, th I don't think either of those things are the case, but it doesn't really matter. As, as a, in practice... We can't work as though there were an absolute standard anyway, because if there is one, we don't know it, or there are different claims to it. You know, ask the Pope what that absolute standard is, and uh, ask uh, somebody, uh, the, the chief rabbi or something, and we get disagreements. So um, it, in, in practice, we don't have that anyway. We don't have access to it. Uh, the complete relativism, well, again, in practice, no one actually sort of believes that anyway. Um, if someone comes to their doctor and say, I would like, I'd like to help ending, ending um, a life, um, it's not mine, by the way, it's my, my partners want to slip them some pills, they don't want to die. I mean, obviously you don't do that, right? You know, um, so we're somewhere in between. Now, I think what you need is, is just like moral seriousness. And, but people do have to recognise that um, it... I think the idea that when people slide from there is no absolute standard to therefore it's just relative, that's dangerous. Because you can't, I don't think, in medical practice say, well, you know, I've got patients, they have all sorts of different cultural backgrounds, and, and who am I to say? Um, you, it's this very difficult balancing act of being sensitive to legitimate differences in values which may lead one person to make a different decision to another and I think a completely illegitimate thing that you know one doesn't have to sort of worry about any broader standards upheld by the profession by society and so forth because you know it's all trumped by a subjective feeling so it's that is is that difficult ground of trying to be as as rigorous and as objective if you like as you can while recognizing the fact you're always going to have these difficult judgments and you know and I think fucking medicine you know I mean <laughs> practicing doctors will always say that they have to make judgment calls all the time I don't envy I think it must be very 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 difficult it's only it's only when you retire actually that you can <clears throat> contemplate the full extent of the responsibility mm. it's only when you stop doing I love the phrase moral seriousness I actually find that mm. in incredibly helpful um, the you know, we're in the wake of the Francis report. We may be in a very nice place, and you know, it's, it's all very nice. But terrible things have been going on in, in, in healthcare. Um, I uh, have, I absolutely share Charlotte's allergy to using the arts in a, in a utilitarian way to graft on care and compassion. It's almost as bad as the political prescription. You will be caring and compassionate, even though the politicians are treating you as a replaceable units in a, in a, in a rapacious industry. Um, so I think that, that I sympathize with that entirely. Um, but we do have to have some way of understanding. Nobody goes into healthcare to harm people. I don't, think, I don't believe anybody goes into any form of healthcare to abuse people. But it's extraordinary how quickly it can unravel into that sort of situation. And it's, it's, it's the way that we 
that in abusive situations we objectify the other person and whether in some way the humanities, the, um, I can't remember what you call them, the human sciences, can help us to hold ourselves and the person we're talking to in the subjective. Um, I, was going to, I was going to speak to that. Um, I think that, by the way, I don't think we disagree, but um, I th so I think that by story, we are story-making species. We, en we enjoy stories, we can remember stories. They, they provide a useful heuristic in terms of thinking about moral dilemmas, especially when you haven't experienced things yourself, especially when you're young. So it's very important that, patient, that doctors have a valuable sort of repository of uh, information about particular cases that they can remember. So I think that the, the humanities or the use of literature, film and so on, can have a very important uh, role in facilitating that perspective taking, even in terms of an aid memoir. I've got a patient that's very similar to this case. What do we do? And that provides that kind of know-how kind of knowledge, that kind of instinctive uh, ability to judge that, cannot, that comes with experience. But um, I think that the, the humanities, to the extent that they, I don't think we should shy away from this, but the extent that the humanities are useful um, should be underpinned. But I'd like to see more uh, inter genuine interdisciplinarity here in seeing exactly how, take the direction from uh, the, the usefulness, what stories are useful. So we, we often, well, I've seen a lot in the literature, you know, if we get students to read Tolstoy or if we get, some stories may be, some stories may be useful, some may be effective, but some, some may not be. I mean, there could be sort of psychological side effects of reading a story about a, a doctor or watching House on TV and you see this doctor's an asshole and you think, yeah, but he's kind of good or people think he's good, so, well, if he can get away with it, you know. So, I think that we've got to let the psychology underpin and not, you know, to be engaged in genuine interdisciplinar interdisciplinarity there. I think, I mean, I see it, again, similar but different, because I think, for me, the arts is all about not seeing things as a case, actually. It's about seeing a person. It's about hearing that excerpt that Bob played us, nobody would ever diagnose David as the patient with dementia again after hearing that. And that took seconds. And I think for me, it's about not an instrumentalism, but it's the facility to access something that matters. It matters to us all. It matters particularly to those who are in a difficult position, who are, ex who are always, always navigating great taboos, actually. Taboos about touch, taboos about loss, about death, about dying, about discussed and actually helping students particularly to do that to retain their compassion whilst also doing the thing to which they are aspiring which is to become professional and objective and able to make decisions that are sound that's really difficult it's what I would sum up as a likeness and a thisness and to capture both of those things in one is immensely difficult, and that's why I think that's what I think the arts has to offer. Um, it's it's simple. Can I just jump in there because I wanted to say I think this is where science or psychology is very important in telling us the cognitive limitations or psychological limitations of what doctors can deal with. So it's not just a patient's perspective. Psychology can inform us. When you when you, you know this, I think what Deborah's saying sounds great. 
It sounds right, but if you're a doctor and you're seeing thousands of patients every year, listen, we are Paleolithic people. You know, we are Stone Age people. We have certain, you know, evolved tendencies uh, to uh, enable us to navigate the world. Um, we anthropologists also tell us that we tend to form meaningful relationships with around uh, groups of around 150 people, stable human relationships with 150 people. Okay, if you're a doctor, you're seeing thousands of patients every year. For the patient, the doctor may be a meaningful uh, person in their life. But it's impossible, I think, probably, to display levels of effective empathy with every patient that you see. In fact, if you did, you'd probably have more doctors with burnout. So I think there's got to be ways to work around. You know, I think we're expecting too much. Sometimes we, we expect doctors to respond in the kind of heartfelt way that we, we probably, as patients, want them to respond. I, I think I have to challenge you there. I mean, you know, I've seen... I, I, I can't imagine how many how many thousands of people I've seen. And, and if I cease to aspire to empathic attention, then yes, I have to pack up. And I, I, and I didn't, you know, I retired because I got ancient. I didn't retire because I got burnt out. And I miss it. And, and the, the fact is that it isn't a burden. It is the most immense reward. It is the most immense privilege to have the opportunity to relate to more than 150 people in a rich and meaningful way. It is a gift. Julian, it's your um, turn. Yeah, well, I wanted to go back to you. When you asked the question, you were talking about the abuses yeah. we'd seen and everything. Because I think this is actually a good example of where this interdisciplinarity, which Charlotte was talking about, is really important. Because if you think about, you know, things go wrong in hospitals or whatever it might be, and people ask, they have an inquiry, and they ask what to do. And um, what do they often do? Well, you know, I don't know. Sometimes they'll come up with new codes of conduct or new rules. Now, the question is, when you look at when these things go terribly wrong, how often is it because there was a wrong code of conduct? Um, the code of conduct never said, you know, go and, like, you know, be rude to your patients or anything. Um, how, how much is it to do with, you know, it's, it's, it's very rarely to do with those things. And actually, because in general, human wrongdoing is very rarely to do with those. People don't generally do wrong because they're in the grip of a wrong moral theory. They generally do wrong because of general human weaknesses. Now, Social psychology is just one resource you really need to appeal to if you're going to understand that. And a non-medical example, Abu Ghraib prison. We know what happened in Abu Ghraib. But Philip Zimbardo did a lot of work on this. He was called as an expert witness for one of the people involved in it. And, well, what was very interesting there was, it all happened on the night shift. It was the night shift that did all this abuse. And the day shift were absolutely fine. It didn't happen at all. Why not? Well, there are actually differences simply in the way in which it was organised. There was a sense that night shift left more to themselves. They didn't have the sense of oversight and check and all that kind of stuff. And as a result, things just span out of control. Now, you know, so you really do need the input of people like social psychology to really understand why it is that things go wrong in institutions and not just uh, think about, you know, rules and ethics and so forth. So, you know, I, I, it's another... Ex it goes back to the point I started with, really, that you really need to draw on a really wide spread of expertise and, and this is an amazing event because it does that in a way which makes everyone feel equally involved. Absolutely. Can I put... Um, uh, I, want to, I want to pick up something that you, I want you to pick wrote. Up on something you said. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pick up on something you wrote which I thought was really fantastic which was to say, why do we call it medical humanities? Why isn't it healthcare humanities? And you had this wonderful idea that, you know, doctors would be invited to read Dostoevsky and nurses would be palmed off with Daniel, Daniel Steele. I thought that was a fantastic um, <laughs> way of putting it. You're clearly an iconoclast. But uh, I, I wanted to uh, 
challenge Deborah with that one. But uh, no, I, I, well, can I just say actually, uh, our first editorial for the Journal of Medical Humanities was about why on earth it was called Medical Humanities and why it wasn't a little bit more reflective and humble as a discipline. Um, and I think it's a long overdue conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, maybe you should get Charlotte to write one of her. I may well. Decisive pieces. <laughs> Sorry, you wanted to challenge. No, me. I just wanted to challenge you on what you. I mean that you enjoyed being a doctor and all the rest of it. And I think, um, you know, this is why we need psychology here too, because we know that first-person analysis is really not the best, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate with all these doctors in the audience too, but, um, you know, introspection is a pretty blunt instrument. And that's why we need, but actually it's a very serious issue because um, social psychology tells us that um, patients with lower, of, judged to be of lower socioeconomic status um, get around 20% less time with their doctor, inferior explanations. So psychology helps us to, to uh, give voice to patients who are marginalized for different reasons. So if you're in a race incongruous relationship with your doctor, and most of this research, by the way, is carried out in America, where there tends to be a serious deficit of African-American, in particular male African-American doctors, uh, on average, you'll get two minutes less in a race incongruous relationship, which tends to be a white, probably middle-class doctor. We know there are significant issues in terms of uh, referrals for common conditions like cancer, and uh, heart, heart conditions, given the same presenting symptoms. So, in fact, um, and in fact, this speaks to what Roger Nebon uh, said earlier, because he said in third world countries, um, we, they tend to have this problem with deference. We don't, we're not like that. Like Actually, we, we are like that, yeah. and we have to face those sort of hidden, dirty secrets of our own behavior. I, I, I'm quite with you there, and I'm going to take it out, out back. We, but we know this. The social psychologists tell us what the problem is. It's how do we find the answer. We know that we spend more time with people like us, partly because they will insist on talking to you about the book they've read or the art <laughs> exhibition. It takes hours, you know, and you're trying to get them, why did you actually come here? So they're you know, eating up the, the 10 minutes. But, so we know the problem. We know that. We've known that for decades. But that doesn't... Telling us what the problem is doesn't actually help me as a doctor in the consulting room as to how I move that further on. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, ethics, of course, it's lovely that we have our own language and we write articles and all the rest of it. But ultimately, for me, the way I see it is ethics is a practice. Um, and you surround yourself with people who do it well, but you also surround yourself with people who are willing to reflect on what they haven't done well um, and who are able to be really honest, actually, about um, lack of moral imagination, a lack of moral courage, about the things that make it difficult for us. And I, I have a session with our students very early on where I talk to them about student ethics, about the sorts of things they might see on the wards that will feel difficult or that they find uncomfortable. Things about dignity and privacy, very small but hugely significant things. And sometimes I can see them looking at me in the lecture theatre thinking, well, I'll just say something. And then I meet them again when they've done a bit of clinical work and they look distressed or they look uncomfortable and you say, you know, what, what's happened? And they will tell you that they've sat in a clinic and not been introduced and not felt able to say, hello, I'm the student, etc. Some of them manage it 
better or more confidently than others. And that is not found on the curriculum. And for me, that is the essence of what we, we could and should be doing if we're going to take this as a subject and its contribution to healthcare seriously. I've gone to the club. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got nothing particular to add to that. But I mean, you say, what can you do to change it? When it comes to things like cognitive biases and everything, all you can do is try and be aware of them and try and correct for them. Now, as Charlotte says, we're very bad at doing this first personally. So people who, um, the, the, the trap is, people who are too sure they all already get it and they're not like that are actually sometimes shown to be the people most likely to, to go along with it. You know, so there's, that, that, there's a real issue. Um, you know, but, but it's, it's the reason I didn't want to speak is that when it comes to practical techniques, I could only get off the cuff ideas. You know, I mean, people should look at your watch. You know, if, if you remember, if you know this thing as a doctor, then every now and again you should just sort of like become aware of it and think to yourself, right, um, what time did this person come in and, and notice if you're giving less time to certain people? There is no shortcut to this. These cognitive biases are really, really difficult to counter. And the patients are fantastic. I had this particular, you know, you learn everything from patients, but I had this wonderful woman who would would come in and she would start telling me a story. If I interrupted, <laughs> she would go back to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> what, what an education was that? Yeah, yeah. I never interrupted her again. Because the first time I interrupted, I'm quite a good listener. I, I, you know, it was three quarters of the way through before. So we went all the way back to the beginning and started again. I sense the lights are coming up. Shall we, um, shall we take some... Is that a hint? Yeah, I think it might be. Um, can we have more light, I think? Is it possible to have more light? And then we could have some... Can you someone up there? You may not be able to. Oh, yes, yes, please. Up there. Hello. I'm Ben. I'm a final year medical student uh, from Manchester. And last year I did a master's in medical humanities at Manchester. And so I suppose in some ways a kind of foot soldier in this battle or a lamb in the slaughter, depending on what position <laughs> you have. But I, I thought that well, after four years of undergraduate medicine being stuffed full of biomedical facts, that I, I had a decent understanding of that dimension of, of uh, humanity, if you like. But I, I knew that there was, well, I, I sensed there was something else I didn't really understand anything about, and, um, which is why I decided to do this degree. And I, I found at the end of it that I'd, I'd gained so much more insight into things like you know, grief and loss and suffering and all the things I'm going to encounter when I start working that I, I would never have the chance to, to really think about in the undergraduate curriculum before. And having had that chance to think about things myself and, and reflect on the things and reading articles from Deborah and Julian as well, actually, that I had the chance to think through for myself and, and take ownership of those ideas for me. And so when I do start work, I know that I've got some sort of framework or some sort of understanding I can fall back on. That I know I've worked for myself and it hasn't been stuffed down my throat. And I think that's, well, you, you can come back to me in a year's time when I've, I've worked and I might have different ideas about it. But I think I'm far more prepared for life as a doctor having had that time to think about things that would have been otherwise. Yeah, I'm envious. Where's another microphone? There. Hi there. Um, I'm, I am co-leader of the Strain uh, Strategy for Medical Humanities at the University of Exeter, and I'm also a senior lecturer in the English department, and I write medical history. Um, the one... I sort of begin with that so that I can, I can give you a sense of where I'm coming from because we, like you, are trying to define what it is we're doing and what our goals are and what we should call ourselves. Um, but there's something that's come up over and over again that's really troubling me. And it's the sort of oppositional relationship between us and the arts, oh, we can humanize you because you really need that, you who work in medicine. And I just think, 
wait a minute, no, 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 because I went into this because I was interested in ideas and because I was discussing ideas with my colleagues who work in medicine. So I'm, I, we were thinking, you know, why did people suddenly think, ooh, inoculation, that's frightening. Uh, what was wrong? Why, did, why does the public misunderstand things having to do with genetics? Why are some of our findings so gender biased? Those kinds of ideas and those kinds of real questions, that's proper interdisciplinary uh, work. Proper interdisciplinary work is not saying, oh, you don't have, you're not, you don't have a heart, but we, we, you know, we're all soft in the humanities. We'll, we'll help you out with that. I think that's really problematic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I teach medical humanities at, um, at Plymouth, and I work with a multidisciplinary team. Um, the team that consists of, so I'm one of the, the only clinicians from the hospital who teaches medical humanities and I work with forum theatre practitioners, um, other people who are involved with video and self-reflection and a creative writer amongst part of the group. So we work together in the workshops. Uh, I work in emergency medicine. I have so many cases that I have to deal with on a daily basis that are challenging and I wanted to, what my passion is, is that I want to let them introduce the medical students to this very early on so that they've got the skills, yeah. understand the narrative of medicine behind what the, the patients, why they're there, understand what their own moral beliefs are, their ethics, their biases that will actually influence their, um, uh, their, their communication with the patient. Um, and then, so we, we I. I, we, we introduce cases, I bring cases along that have been challenging for me, my colleagues. I let them do that without the law and ethics behind it, because they don't, they don't know it yet. I let them see what they think with their knowledge at present. And then I challenge them and say, do you understand where you've got your beliefs from? And here, actually, there's some law and there's ethics behind it. And this is what will help you when you get out on the shop floor, as I call it. And hopefully you've got some foundation to work with. And that's what I think is humanity, what medical humanities, whatever you want to call it, in the end, is all about. Yeah. A space for thinking. Yeah. Absolutely. Let them think beyond the box that medicine puts them in. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody do say if you want to respond. Yes, uh, middle at the back, a red. No, no, you're not allowed to shout. Um, this, this, um, yeah, second row from the back, red, red pullover. Yeah. Hello, I'm a first year medical student at St George's. Um, I want to ask when I'm talking to a patient, even somebody who might appear to be sort of different from me, often the way I find I build a rapport is through what we have in common. Um, but bearing that in mind, do you think you can ever really understand the otherness of other when you're talking to a patient? And could the arts be a route to that? I, th I think I'm being asked to provide the medical... I, I, I don't think it's ever possible to fully understand the other. The other is essentially unknowable. But that is, that is the delight. You are attempting something impossible. And therefore, yeah. therefore that, is the, that is the thrill, really, to see how... Yeah how far you can go, and, and any, because it's an impossible task, any progress is yeah. great. And if you come to it with curiosity and openness, you, you won't go wrong, I think. I think that's the other thing, that actually we worry so much about, particularly in very operationalised comm skills, about you know, having the right words, but actually if you have those underlying values of openness and honesty and humility, 
it's very difficult, I think, to get it wrong, actually. Yeah, empathy is obviously a skill people talk about. I think it's important to understand what it is and what it isn't, though, or what it is and what it should be, maybe. Which is that, you know, some people think empathy is essentially a kind of a... It doesn't have any real cognitive role, as it were. It's about trying to... You know, it's just an emotional response of putting yourself in their place. And I think that actually, and this is important for morality in general, but not just this situation, in order to really sort of, you know, see things from someone else's point of view, you often have to consciously go beyond your emotional and imaginative resources. There are people who, who believe things and have values which... I can never, I can't begin to imagine what it's like to have them. I'm not talking about, you know, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I, I, you sort of have that conversation with, with somebody and you, you really struggle to, to, to get it. And if you're relying on the sort of the idea that we can, we can understand each other simply by uh, being open and emotional to them, sometimes you have to kind of try and understand where something is coming from and accept it on an intellectual level, even though you can never know what it's like to feel that. I can actually think of some examples when it comes to. Um, perhaps a, a certainly non non medical context, perhaps where um, in, for example, there are some people who are very gregarious, can't really imagine what it's like to be an introvert in in, a, in the full sense of being really content with your own company, and you know, and people will worry about people spending time by themselves, even though they insist, no, no, I'm really happy by that about that. So it's in that kind of situation where you have to, as it were, trust what you're being told, even though you can't feel or imagine what it's like. So there's that, in, the intellectual component is, is often underlooked when people are thinking about empathy in its fullest sense. Can I chip in there? Um, because I think the science of empathy, we, we would understand it's sort of a behavioral component. So if you're with someone uh, who you know is being, or you, you feel is being empathetic, they'll probably mimic your behavioral pattern, maybe uh, and they'll mimic your, your body language and so on. There is a cognitive component that is ability to read other people's minds effectively. Um, there tends also to be this kind of effect, effective or emotional component too. Um, but it may be in the case of medicine, we can uh, encourage doctors to, to display the behavioural um, cues and so on of empathy and enhance their cognitive ability without doctors. Maybe some doctors are able to respond in an emotional way, but it's, it's likely to be quite a burden, but I wanted to say one more thing. It is the important, you know, empathy isn't just important uh, in terms of a kind of an ethical or a moral respect or a moral ser seriousness for patients. Empathy is important as a therapeutic tool. And it's also important in uh, encouraging adherence to medication and so on too. We know that it's predictive of patients um, adhering to medication and, and turning up to keeping their appointments and so on. So. If you like, treatment begins as soon as before you even open your mouth, um, and that's important. But empathy is also a, a trap, because empathy can very rapidly slide into an assumption, so that you can assume that you've understood. And I think, always check back. It's that question where you've just decided this patient must be gay. And so a whole load of things follows from that. If you don't ask and just sit on your assumption, then you can begin to make all sorts of mistakes and get into all sorts of trouble. Personal test me in this area. Um, so always, always, always mm -hmm. check. Check that your empathic understanding is correct. Uh, Sam, I, I, I do have more hands, but I take it from you that I have, I am at the 
end of the road. I think so. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Indeed.